Hi, welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregg. Welcome to lovehonorandvacuum.com. And on this podcast, we like to focus on marriage and sex, hence bear marriage, but also how to strip away a lot of the teachings and a lot of the junk that are keeping us from having awesome marriages. We like to make sure that we are focused on Jesus and nothing else and then keep running after him. We are starting a new series on the blog and the podcasts right now. This week, this is the launch of it leading up to the launch of our new book, The Great Sex Rescue, which is out March 2nd. You can pre-order it now. It helps us a ton when you do that. So thank you very much. But for The Great Sex Rescue, we conducted the largest survey that has ever been done of Christian women's marital and sexual satisfaction. We talked to 20,000 women and we asked them all kinds of questions. And one of the big things we were trying to get to the bottom of is, are there certain things that are taught often in evangelical circles about sex and marriage that keep women from having great sex and marriage? So we measured all kinds of different teachings and we identified several that are really quite toxic. And those are the ones that we deconstruct in The Great Sex Rescue. For the next few weeks, we're going to spend each week looking at a different teaching and how that's affected sex. And this week, we're going to start with the gatekeeping message. The idea that boys are going to want to push your sexual boundaries. And a lot of us heard that as teenagers. We actually looked at this in several podcasts last spring and how this idea can affect our ability to get aroused and our ability to let ourselves go during sex. And that was a really interesting discussion. I think that this is one of the big reasons that women don't get aroused is because we're still playing cop on ourselves once we're married. And I'm going to put links in the podcast post that goes along with this podcast to those podcasts and those posts because they're so fascinating. One of them was actually my biggest post of the year in terms of how many comments it got. So women were really engaged on this topic. So we don't want to rehash all of that today, but we do want to look at some specific things that we didn't cover back then. And also, here's a fun thing. I get to reveal some of our stats for the first time. So here you go. Do you want to know how believing that boys are going to want to push your sexual boundaries affects marriage now? Well, when women believed that in high school, school, once they get married, they are 59% more likely to engage in sex with their husbands only because they feel they have to. They are 34% more likely to say that they could take or leave sex really doesn't matter to them. They're 24% less likely to frequently orgasm. They're 58% more likely to be uncomfortable with how their husband looks at other women while they're in public and they're 47% more likely to report not feeling heard when they are in conflict with their husbands. In other words, if you believe this in high school, it's far more likely to mess up your marriage and sex life. And so this is one of those teachings we need to deconstruct. We're going to do two things this podcast that help us deconstruct this teaching. First, we're going to take it one step further and take a look at the idea of sexual assault because this is so prevalent in the church. And I have a guest who's going to come on and talk about her new book. We'll get to her in a minute. And then at the end, Rebecca's going to join me. And if you enjoyed her deconstruction of that survey a couple of weeks ago, right before Christmas, when she looked at how the survey about love and respect is so slanted, well, she's going to do that to another survey question and show how this whole idea of boys going to want to push your sexual boundaries, where that got started in the evangelical church and how it really wasn't a fair way to convey what was actually going on in boys' minds. So listen to this interview and then stay tuned as Becca joins us after. 
Welcome to the Beer Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to strip away everything that is bad and terrible about some of the marriage teaching and get back to what God really wanted for marriage. And this week, I am so pleased to have on my podcast, Ruth Everhart, who is the author of several books, including The Me Too Reckoning, which was one of Publishers Weekly's um, 20 big religion books of 2020. So Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here with you, Sheila. And I don't have a copy of the book to show because I was reading a Kindle version, um, but I, I wore your colors. I mean, there we go. See, I match your book. Is you that, do. You isn't do. that wonderful? And it is. And I never wear hot pink. <laughs> I thought this was a good excuse. So <laughs> I know I'm, I'm just going to give a trigger warning before we jump into some difficult stuff here, because your book is, is a, such an important book because it deals with what's really going on and what with so many, both women and men in the church and a lot of the victimization that has taken place and a lot of the trauma that has happened and how the church can properly deal with that trauma. But whenever we're talking about trauma, of course, that can be very traumatizing to people who have trauma in their background. So just a trigger warning, we are gonna be talking about sexual assault on this podcast, but I hope that we can do it in a way that can help women feel valuable and see a way forward in Christ. So that's my heart for this. So, and I know it's yours too, Ruth. So would you, would you share some of your story of what made you wanna write me to reckoning. Well, I always say that I didn't choose this topic, but that the topic chose me. Not a, it's not a club you want to join, the club of women who've been sexually assaulted. But once it happens, what do you do with it? For me, it was such a shaping experience to be, I was violently um, assaulted at gunpoint when I was 20 years old, which is the story I tell in my memoir. And it was a very overwhelming experience. And in the context of my life at that time, I was in a Christian college. I was studying English and religion and honestly had not experienced much of a broader world. And when these two men broke into the house where I lived and they were armed and they terrorized us and they held us at gunpoint and then uh, took turns raping us, it was like that night, that experience of six hours completely upended my life like somebody had just spilled me out and I had to put myself back together and so there was really a period of about 10 years in which I kind of found a new faith and a new way forward and part of that kind of reconfiguration of myself ended up leading me to seminary which was something that was verboten from where I came from women were not allowed to be in ministry so I had changed a lot. I had become a different person, but I found that the experience of assault kind of followed me in my career. I went into ministry. I became an associate pastor and my senior pastor prayed upon me. And I was shamed about that because here I'd been victimized again. And it was a, the kind of victimization that was harder to see. This was not rape at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. This was much more subtle, but in some ways just as damaging or even more damaging. And so after I experienced that, I, I just felt like to come to terms with my own story to unearth whatever gift was in it, you know, if our life is mm -hmm. a gift of God, what do you do with it when it sucks, you know, so, <laughs> so that, you know, that's my theological word, I suppose, mm -hmm. so I wrote about it, and I have used it as a way to connect with other 
women and men who are victims mm -hmm. and to try to be an advocate for them and for the fact that the church has to deal differently with issues around sexuality, especially sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I love in your book, you tell several stories of people who have, who have been abused in some way within the church circles, but then you, you root it back to stories in scripture. You look at Tamar, you look at Hagar, you look at all kinds of, of biblical figures to see how there's similar things that we can see. This is, this is not a new story. This is a very old story. It's an um, ancient story. Yeah. But if Christ came to make all things new, then we need, and, and if Christ values us, if we truly are image bearers, then what we experience matters. And yeah. The church needs to understand that. So I, what I found so, so moving about, I mean, obviously what happened to you when you were 20 was absolutely horrific. And that, that isn't really the focus of, of, of this book. You talk about it, but it's not the focus. The focus is more what happens in the church setting. And what I found so sad, the, the moment when I was reading your story that I, I just went, oh no, was when you had actually brought this to the leaders of your church and you were explaining to them how your senior pastor had been grooming you and how he had kissed you and it was wrong and, and, and everything and how all of them dismissed it or just wanted you to see it as something that wasn't that bad and, and just get over it. And that's what we so often hear. I think that's what the Me Too movement began in response to is the fact that it's so ordinary for women to be assaulted in major and minor ways that we've almost lost the ability to see it. And I think that when women start to tell their stories and other people start to understand the enormity of these experiences, then there is a sense that people will wake up and start listening. At least that's the hope. Mm -hmm. um, I know that back when I told the personnel committee at church what had happened, there was an immediate circling of the wagons. He had a lot more power than I did. He knew a lot more people than I did. And the immediate assumption was that he was a good and honorable man and that I mm -hmm. was simply wrong and that mm -hmm. I needed to shut up. And mm -hmm. I felt completely silenced, which is one of the reasons that when I tell that story, I use the story of Tamar because when mm -hmm. she was raped by her brother Amnon, you know, Absalom says to her, Oh, my sister, you know, do not take it to heart. Do not yeah. speak about this. He, he completely silences her. And we don't hear from her again in scripture. And I, I mean, I'm so grateful that we're given Tamar's story because in that story in scripture, we see all these same dynamics that I experienced, mm -hmm. which is why I kind of wanted to weave the stories together so we could say, you know, it's not just, oh, this happened to Ruth. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, this happens to a lot of women and this is the dynamic that happens. And this is how the church interacts with that. And this is how we can change then and to, mm -hmm. to bring Jesus into the picture. I think maybe what some people don't always understand either is they'll look at someone's story and they'll say, well, that really wasn't that bad. You're, you're, you're making too much out of it. And yet you were someone who who went through something that was absolutely as horrific as it could be. And then you went through something which a lot of people would say, well, so we gave you a bunch of gifts. So we tried to kiss you. I mean, that's not that traumatic, but the point really isn't what happened to you. The point is the way they are seeing you and, and the way that they are dismissing who you are as a person and seeing that they're just trying to use you. I mean, that's the point. It's not the actual actions. It's, it's how they're treating you. Right. Sexual abuse is always the abuse of power. And that power mm -hmm. is manifests in different ways. 
when two men who with, with guns broke into my home, their power was their weapons mm-hmm. and their threat over our life. When I was abused by the senior pastor, the power wasn't a gun. So yeah, it's not as obvious and it doesn't seem as bad, you know, mm-hmm. but the power he had over me was more subtle and in a way more damaging because he had power over my career. He had power over my vocation, over my financial future, over my ability to uh, to thrive in ministry, which was something that I had given my whole heart. Mm-hmm. So he really derailed a big portion of my life. And I had just spent 10 years putting my life back together after the last one. So yeah, I I think this kind of compare, I always say you can't compare trauma. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not an Olympics, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and women write to me all the time and tell me their stories and they'll say, well, it wasn't so bad because, Mm -hmm. and then they'll give a reason. Every therapist will tell you that that's not a helpful way to talk about your own story, your own pain, because it's not like there's a scale and we're going to assign points. (laughs) Yeah. But I think we can look at how the event affected us going forward, what we made of it. It's not just what happened to us. It's what we make of what happens to us. And unfortunately, if we're surrounded by lousy theology, we can make some really bad things out of what happened to us. Like we can say, oh, that means I wasn't worthy. Oh, it means that I'm impure. Oh, it means mm-hmm. that I'm less than. There was so, there. I think it was Melissa's story in particular where uh, that idea that I am, I am, less than because I'm not a virgin anymore. And a lot of those purity culture messages, we explored that in last week's podcast with Rachel Joy Welcher about talking back to purity culture. But a lot of that is in your book too and how that can impact um, victims of sexual assault. So I want to talk about one of your stories and take us on a little bit of a rabbit trail and where that took me. But I believe her name was Stephanie. I may have that wrong, but I believe her name was Stephanie and her church had a soup kitchen feeding program associated with it. And uh, one of the people who had been coming to that feeding program started stalking her. So she had to get the church to remove this man when he was found in the church when she was alone. And that was done. And that was great. But what she realized was that the the volunteer, the head volunteer in the soup kitchen had been making all kinds of sexist jokes and, and setting this stage where that kind of an attitude towards women was acceptable. And so it's like this poor guy who probably had mental health issues. And he was just kind of going along with what this volunteer had been saying was okay to do. And eventually they had to take away that volunteer. But as I got thinking about that, I thought about all the times in my church history and in my girls' church history, when we as women put up with really creepy stuff in youth group, in ministry, whatever, because we feel like, well, the gospel's at stake. I'm already a Christian. I'm already saved. This person isn't saved. And so I need to put up with something feeling not safe because it's more important for this person to be saved than for me to be safe. Wow. That's quite a soundbite right there. It's more important for this person to be saved than for me to feel safe. Mm -hmm. Let's just look at that. I mean, theologically, how important is my safety? If I'm an image bearer of God, or if you're an image bearer of God, and you feel unsafe, how seriously should we take that? Mm -hmm. You know, what value should we ascribe to that? That would seem to me to be a high value. I mean, if we were talking about my daughter or your daughter, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's easier to be an advocate for someone else sometimes than for yourself. So think about it in terms of 
a woman you love, a best friend, a sister, a daughter, what would you want for them? Would you want them to feel safe as they went about in the world? Well, heck yeah. Mm -hmm. You want them to feel safe in their own skin. You want them to be safe. It's of a high value. You think of how we enact protection around our children now. Well, now we'll compare that to whether or not this hypothetical man can be hypothetically saved. If we believe that uh, Jesus uh, will act as a sovereign and what Jesus wills will be done, why do we assume that our actions are the only ones that will bring this hypothetical man to, to being saved? I mean, yes, we can be instruments of the kingdom, but maybe what that kingdom looks like is that by creating a space where women are safe, that we're showing the world what the kingdom looks like and that will draw people mm-hmm. in. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that there is so much assumption about, one of the assumptions of patriarchy is that men have power and that men have power over women. And so this bleeds through in ways that are apparently innocuous, but they rest on these assumptions. So I'm, I'm just trying to kind of unearth the assumption that's underneath there, that somehow women's safety is not that important and that what a man needs rises above what a woman needs. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of assumption that women are in relationships with men like fix-it projects, you know, that women that women are oh, supposed yeah. to fix the men that God puts in their path. Like that's what it means to nurture. That's a very flawed idea. It leads to a lot of damage and trauma and all kinds of relationships. And I'm sure you talk about this all the time because you're always dealing with relationships and these assumptions that, that, that women fix men. Oh, stop and think about that. No, no, that's not acceptable. I I remember when I was, uh, I'm going to say 20 years old, 1920, I was on a short-term missions trip in the summer and I went to Tunisia, North Africa. I was on a group of maybe eight people And there were three or four women and a couple of men. And we went on public transit quite a bit. I was a 20-year-old, blonde, relatively attractive woman. And when we were on public transit, which was very crowded, all of these men would literally put their hands under my shirt. They would grab me. They would have my, their hands all over between my legs everywhere. And we were so crowded in, I couldn't tell who it was. And when I would tell the men on the team that this was happening to me, the attitude that, that they gave was that this was just part of what I had to put up with as a missionary in North Africa. And, and it was as if they didn't want to give any credence to it because to do so would be to say, well, these other women aren't pretty because they, they kept saying, well, that's not happening to me. And so I learned that I couldn't speak up about it. And I, it was really, it, it really affected me for the, after I came home for a few months, if there was any man walking towards me on the sidewalk, I had to walk on the other side of the road. Like it took a while and they would keep wanting to go out and do ministry in cafes at night and, and talk. And I never wanted to go because as soon as I went, everybody would try to touch me, <laughs> but it was that attitude that, well, we're on a missions trip and this is the price of being on the missions trip. And I had to think through that. That was a difficult thing to think through. And I wrestled with that. Do I need to consent to, to sexual assault to serve God? And what's your answer to that question now? Yeah, now it would be definitely no, but I'll tell you, I wouldn't have said no maybe 15 years ago. Like it, it, would, it took me a while to get to that point because you feel like, well, their salvation is the most important thing. And what I've realized, I think, is that the kingdom of God is so much more than just one person's salvation. 
you know, the kingdom of God is, is, is about justice and it's about love and it's about serving one another and bringing the kingdom of God to earth. is not just about getting people to say a prayer. It's about changing the way we relate to each other. And so if we, if we put up with injustice against image bearers of God, then we're not bringing the kingdom of God anywhere. <laughs> well, that's all beautifully said. And all I can say is amen, preach it. Um, yeah. That's absolutely right. And I'm glad you came to that place. And I'm really grieved that it was so difficult and took so long for you to kind of shed whatever layers were on top of that before you could get there. And I think whatever it was that you had to shed, that's exactly what the church needs to strip away these notions that are cultural, that, that, that somehow confuse sexual assault with attractiveness. Remember in 2016 when those tapes surfaced and there was the comment, oh, she's too ugly to rape, you know? Yeah. It's so completely wrong to, to, to confuse mm-hmm. sexual assault with attraction that, that somehow this is a, pri- you know, and then no, you said it better than I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's, it is just a power thing. And I know, I, I know that I didn't speak up enough as a mom about this either. So here's to all the moms out there listening. My girls, when they went to youth group, especially my oldest daughter, like Rebecca would tell you, there were times when there were certain guys at the youth group and she had to tell other guys, you cannot leave me alone in a room with him. Like just the vibes they were getting from this guy was just so bad. And that shouldn't be okay in a youth group situation that the girls in the youth group don't feel safe. And yet the message that we're given is, oh, but isn't this great that these guys are coming into the church and they're hearing the gospel and our girls matter too. (laughs) Yeah. At the expense of our daughter's safety. No, that's not Mm -hmm. all right. Yeah. Although of course, what we also know is that a lot of the assault that happens in church is not from these other guys, but from these pastors themselves. And that's what, what, even though my daughter felt scared by some of these guys, the incidents of sexual assault in youth groups that we know of personally were not from these marginal boys. It was actually from youth pastors. Well, and you yeah. mentioned, we started this with talking about Stephanie's story in the soup kitchen, right? And the whole mm-hmm. reason that, that, that the way that story is structured is to show that what she was afraid of was this this homeless man who in many ways was also himself a victim, but he was getting the go ahead from the the church volunteer who had Mm -hmm. considerable power and authority in the situation. And when I told, tell that story, I'm trying to show how systemic uh, abuse is within church contexts often that there is the go ahead from the person on the top that it's okay to trample on other people's boundaries that they are less worthy and so we can treat them poorly and and then that women somehow exist for the pleasure of men yeah you're right that that there are the assaults are often not from some outsider they're from the person within who is in a position of power so before we move on to the next thing i was wondering if you could share with us a story that you've heard of a church that handled this well well i think Recently, I've been heartened a church here. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And there was a church uh, near me that had an account of a youth pastor who had what you could call a relationship with a 16-year-old girl, which of course is actually meaning that he raped her because uh, that's, that's legally what it is. And they dealt with it correctly. They called in law enforcement. They didn't do it perfectly, but they did it correctly. And 
they are trying real hard. They have had a lot of conversations in their church. They are mandating some training for every staff member and so on. But even more, I mean, I think you can mandate all the training you want and it's important. But what has to happen is there has to be a cultural shift where people start to realize that valuing women and girls is, is part of, of being a faith community. Mm-hmm. And um, I see that happening. And of course, and of course, it isn't only women and girls, because in your book, even you have some examples of boys who've been sexually abused in churches as well. And we know that that's often that story. And, you know, it's not I just want to say to for everyone listening, we're not saying that churches are evil because there's sexual abuse in churches, because abusers are naturally attracted to churches, because churches are great places to to find people to abuse. So there are always going to be abusers in the church. The problem is not that there's abuse in the church necessarily. The problem is that in too many churches, we've created conditions where it's easier for that abuse to happen. And then we've either covered it up, we've justified it, or we've ignored it afterwards. So the problem is not the abuse itself. The problem is, are we dealing with it? (laughs) Yes. Are we, are we doing what we need to prevent it? And then Mm -hmm. when it does happen, how do we respond? Yeah. And I've, I've got, uh, Rebecca went to, my daughter, Rebecca went to a great church in Ottawa that dealt with it really well as well. The abuse hadn't happened in the church, but someone who was connected with the church was arrested on uh, some charges to do with sex trafficking. And the church made statements to the press. They did a full review. They were very open and that was really good to see. So, you know, there's a lot of churches doing this well. And I think if you want your church to do it well, picking up the Me Too Reckoning is a great place to start. So <laughs> do check out that book. And is, you must have been so heartened to learn that it was one of um, Publishers Weekly's top 20 book. That's wonderful. Oh, it was thrilling. It was thrilling to be named, you know, as one of the five books about religion that you should read in 2020. So, yes. I mean, I'm grateful if it can help move us forward. Yeah. Excellent. Well, okay. I always also have a segment where I like to talk about new research. And so I would love to ask you your take on this and how the church can properly respond. So I want to read to you something. This is from the Journal of Internal Medicine. Okay. And what they were looking at was the percentage of women whose first experience with sexual intercourse is rape. And what they found was that 6.5% of women reported that their first experience was indeed rape, that the age, if your first experience is rape, then your first experience of sex is about a year and a half younger. So it's 15.6 years of age instead of 17.4 And the age of your assailant, if your first experience was rape, is six years older than if it was just a normal sexual initiation. Uh, And then it talks about all the different things that are far more likely to happen if your first experience was rape. And obviously, we would expect abortion and unwanted first pregnancy. But there's also things like endometriosis and pelvic inflammatory disease and migraines and poor health and all those other things because the body keeps the score. <laughs> you know, so how can the church better respond to this? Because six and a half percent is a lot of women. That means in an average church, if you've got 200 people, 100 women, that means that, you know, around seven women, that's going to be their first experience. And that means that there's many more who will have been raped as well, just not necessarily for their first experience. So what can the church do, you're saying, in in response to this kind of um, statistic? Well, 
what lays the ground for that statistic, I think, is that there is this power differential between men and women so that men still can prey upon women. Um, and, and you're talking about this older age, uh, preying upon younger women. And so I think the message has to be that that's not acceptable. And that's not the role that women are supposed to play as being somehow less than men and to have to help women kind of claim their agency their ability to make choices that matter about their life and i don't think we give women and girls and even perhaps boys the message about pushing back against authority we we tend to treat children as having to always be subject to authority and you know that's an important message but i think that to teach people that they own their bodies and that when people encroach upon their bodily boundaries, they can, they can and must push back. I think that's a message that hopefully we're starting to teach mm -hmm. more. I know that my own daughters, I could have done a better job than what I did. I tried and I hope that uh, we will continue to just get better at that message. Yeah, I could have done such a better job with Rebecca and Katie too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but but hopefully the more we're talking about this, the better we can get. And I, I think too, you know, one thing we talk about in, in our upcoming book, The Great Sex Rescue, is just how much women have been told that men, all men lust, they can't help it. And so it's up to you to stop them. And that placing the blame for men's sin on women and girls, I think just yes. enables a rape culture too. That women are responsible for the male gaze, that women mm -hmm. are responsible for what men do. And that is that is so deeply held in all the mm -hmm. And I do think that the more pastors preach about sexuality yeah. from the pulpit, yeah. I mean, I wish they would engage, you know, some of the stories that I use in my book. Those mm -hmm. are often the stories that are not preached upon. And I think they can be. And I think that people can deal with them in, in adult education and so on. And we can talk about sexuality in a lot more healthy ways than we do. And I know that's something that you work on doing mm -hmm. all the time, Sheila. So, yeah. yeah. I just wish more pastors would preach on trauma because you think about that seven out of every hundred women, their first experience was rape. And then how many other women went through something else later? That's a lot of women. And we know it's a lot of men too. And that's so much trauma sitting in our pews. And yet we tend to dismiss it by saying, you know, Jesus can heal anything and he can, but it goes deeper than that. But it's because we like to strip spirituality away from our bodies as if, you know, mm -hmm. it's that body spirit dualism, you know, that we inherited from the Greeks. It's, it's this notion that somehow our, we, we, we can just separate ourselves. And instead of seeing that, no, the incarnation means that our, our being, you know, is embodied, uh, our spiritual self is embodied in a body and that's a good thing. And so we don't have to be afraid of embracing our sexuality and our whole self. Yeah, the body does keep the score. And so when we heal, it has to happen kind of multidimensionally. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. I will put a link on where you can get the Me Too Reckoning in the podcast post that goes along with this. So check out the book. It really is wonderful. And I appreciate you joining us. Is there anything else you want to tell people about where they can find you or... Oh, you, I've got a website. I'm on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, I would love to hear from you. And you can um, email me on my website. I get a lot of stories from women that way. I love hearing from my readers. Thanks. Okay. Well, we will put all those links too. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again, Sheila. It was great. All right. 
So you are here. We're going to talk here. about a survey question. I know we just did a really heavy yeah. segment with Ruth, but we want to continue that and take a look at some of the rape culture and gatekeeping messages that, that are in a lot of books that are geared to our teen girls. Yes, exactly. And one of those is For Young Women Only by Shanti Felden and Lisa Rice. It was yeah. published in 2006. And I do want to say, I know we're taking this the second survey question of Shanti's that we're attacking. And we're not, it's not that we're only trying to attack Shanti's research. It's she's the only one who has done surveys. Yeah, so, so, so and yeah. Um, Rachel Joy Welcher, who was on our podcast last week, was also talking about Shanti's book and her mm-hmm. book, um, Talking Back to Purity Culture. Yep. In this book, which is based on a survey, a nationally representative survey of 400 boys, 400 teenage boys. I think it was 400 teenage boys. So, yeah. so they asked boys all of these questions, and then they're writing this book to tell girls what boys think. Yes. And one of those questions is this one, which is what we want to focus on today. Yeah, so I'll read it. Survey asks, whether or not you are currently involved with a girlfriend, if you were to be in a makeup situation with a willing partner who does not signal a desire to stop, how do you feel about your ability to stop the sexual progression? Okay, so the, the scenario we're just, we're describing here is a consensual relationship where yes. the girl wants to go further. Yes, in fact, not only does she say it's consensual, she says it is willing partner who does not signal a desire to stop. This is consensual yeah. twice. This is doubly consensual. Lots of consent. Okay, yeah. and here's what the guy said. So 30% said, why would I want to stop the sexual progression? Mm-hmm. Valid. Okay. Frankly. Okay. 18% say, almost no ability. When the door is opened, it's just too tough to stop the fun. Mm-hmm. 34% say, some ability, but it would require a massive effort, and I might go further than intended. Okay. And last 18% say, I find it easy to stop the sexual progression. Okay, so... From those numbers, here's her conclusion. Mm-hmm. She adds up the first three categories yes. and comes to the conclusion that... 82% of guys report serious difficulties in bringing things to a halt in a makeup session or no desire to halt things at all! Exclamation point emphasis hers. And her headings in this section are that guys have little ability to stop and little responsibility. So that's what she's emphasizing. So she takes this consensual question... And her conclusions are boys have little ability or little responsibility to stop sex when they're from making it. Okay. Now, what would happen if we took those numbers and added them up in a different way? Yes. See, this is how I would actually add these numbers up. Okay. Right? So the question that she's asking is how do you feel about your ability to stop the sexual progression? So what's the logical breaking point there? Mm-hmm. People who stopped it and people who didn't. Yeah, people who have ability and people who don't have exactly. ability. Mm-hmm. So very clearly the first two, they pretty clearly go in the no ability. So yeah. 48% of boys have no ability, but that leaves 52% of non-Christian boys necessarily in who a are consensual, in a, again, in a doubly consensual relationship. situation. Shanti has taken their hot girlfriends, made them aroused and willing and been like, your girlfriend's saying, take me, what do you do? And 52% of boys still say they don't. Yeah, that they have an ability 52% of boys, 34% say some ability, but it would require a massive effort and I might go further than intended, but that's not sex. Yeah. They say they have some ability and, to stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 18% say, I'd just stop it. Yeah. So 52% of boys, mm-hmm. even when they're in a consensual sexual encounter with a girlfriend, this mm-hmm. isn't even just a random girl. This is someone who, in the non-Christian sphere, you would have a realistic mm-hmm. expectation of, of sex. sex. Yeah. 52% still wouldn't. But that's not the way she portrayed it. But that's it. not the way she says it. So the way that she combined things, it's like saying you had this one like... Yeah, I, I, I said that. Like It would be like if we took all a survey of all men and their sexual experiences and we said 95% of men by their 60th birthday will have had sex, even if by force. 
Yeah, that gives a very different feel, doesn't it? Like It does. Whereas if we split it up the other way, where who are rapists and who aren't, yeah. find the vast majority of men not rapists. Yes. You know? <laughs> but when, when you combine things that shouldn't be combined, then you give a false impression of what's really going on. Yeah, we misrepresent the we data. Mis- yeah. You know, because her question was not about, do you find it hard to stop? Her question was about what's your ability to stop. Yeah. And then she groups it based on how difficult or their perceived experience of trying to stop. And that a lot, most men feel no responsibility and little ability. Now, when you were dissecting the survey a couple of weeks ago on love and respect, you talked about the two different measures that we look at to make Mm -hmm. sure that a survey is good, reliability and validity. So reliability is like if people have similar questions that might be worded slightly differently, but mean the same thing, they'll answer the same way. Yeah, so like if you have a question, are you married, you should answer the same way as when you say, are you not married? So if you say, yes, I am married, you should answer no to not married, right? Yes. That would be, it's a reliable survey. Yes. You know. But then validity doesn't say, do they answer the same way? Validity says, is this question actually measuring what we think it's measuring? Yeah. So do the people who say, yes, I am married actually have a marriage certificate? Right. Or are they married? Yes. Are they actually? So in the book, the point that she is trying to make, the, the all of the conclusions that she is making from this question Uh are about the fact, and we're going to get to this in a minute, that boys can't stop. Yes. And so if you're a Christian girl who wants to not have sex, you need to understand that your boyfriend will not stop. Yeah. But is that what she found? Mm -hmm. Is that what she found in that question? Because she did not ask if the girl said no. So She didn't. Exactly. So first of all, the first problem with validity is that this is the wrong group. Yeah. Because we're talking about Christian guys. This would be like if you were measuring a depression inventory on people who were not depressed to try to see how good it was at measuring depression symptoms. Yeah. Right? You might get a reliable answer, but you're not actually measuring depression symptoms. They don't have any depression symptoms. Yeah, because if we're trying to ask how Christian girls, what they're going to face in a dating relationship where they're most likely dating Christian guys. Mm -hmm. And so Christian guys are hopefully going to see this in a different light. And in fact, she did. did. She actually did some interviews with Christian guys. And you know what? She said that they saw differences in a couple key areas between guys who identified themselves as Christians and who attended church weekly and those who didn't. Christian guys seem to feel a much higher degree of responsibility in the area of sex, or at least a greater knowledge of the dynamics and repercussions of sexual involvement. Okay, so she found the Christian guys are different, but she didn't change her numbers. No. And this was like way further down. So the yeah. main thing she's emphasizing is this 82% of guys have little responsibility or little ability to stop when that, again, is that really what she found? So she's asking the wrong group. She's not asking Christians. I mean, it's it's valid. It's totally valid to say to girls, you know what? If you date a non-Christian, they're not going to see sex in the same way. That's yeah. that's a valid thing to say, but yeah. that's not what she's saying. <laughs> yeah, especially if you emphasize, like, you know what? If she had taken that question and said, listen, girls, you know, if you want to have a sexual ethic that is, you know, the typical Christian sexual ethic, you want to save sex until marriage, or you don't want to be promiscuous in high school, or like all these different things, you know, you just got to recognize that a lot of guys... They really like sex. You Mm -hmm. really like sex. Everyone really likes sex. So have the conversation ahead of time. Because if you have a conversation about boundaries and you're very good at communicating and you're with a healthy person who respects your no, you won't go past your boundaries. Yeah. You know, she She doesn't say that. Instead, she says 82% of guys have little ability and little responsibility. So first of all, wrong cohort. Here's the other problem with validity. Yeah. Is that what she is measuring 
is how many guys are going to want to go all the way in a, <laughs> in a consensual relationship. But the conclusion that she's making is that guys will not stop, mm -hmm. implying that you want them to. So because here's what she says at the end of the chapter. Ready? Like not the chapter, but the end of this section of the chapter. My apologies. So at the end, she says, as a final question on the survey, we gave the guys a blank space and asked what their top advice would be for girls in life, including their little sister. It's probably no surprise that most answers dealt with sex in some way. What was a surprise was the large number of guys who said things like, be careful, be cautious, watch out. This was one of the strongest themes that emerged in the whole survey. In fact, one out of every five guys chose to use that blank space to focus only on that. So here's mm -hmm. the problem. Mm -hmm. She is combining boys giving advice to little sisters to watch out be careful. Some guys are bad people. She's combining that with her question about if you're in a consensual relationship and your girlfriend is eager and willing to have sex, do you want to have consensual sex with her? With be careful because some guys won't respect you. Yeah. She's combining two things that are not the same. And we don't know if these guys were talking about consensual relationships. I don't think so. Why would any high school guy be like, watch out. Your boyfriend might want to have consensual sex with you. Yeah. Like that doesn't make sense. Right. Unless you have an agenda to tell girls that boys are dangerous and it is their job to keep boys in line sexually. Mm -hmm. That is, and, and I genuinely, I have read this many times. Mm -hmm. I genuinely do not see another way of misrepresenting the data this much mm -hmm. and combining two completely not related questions Mm -hmm. in this way unless your point was to try to tell girls that it's not boys job to stop it's their job to stop boys another thing that she does repeatedly is that she insinuates that this is much harder for guys than it is for girls so she says for instance for a guy even more than a girl making out often starts a physical drive towards sex that requires a major effort to override and but in a major flashback to for women only, do you think she asked girls? She never asked this question to girls. No, no, she didn't just ask this question. She didn't ask like very many questions at all about sex drive. And the one question that she did ask, mm -hmm. there were three responses. It was like, if you're in a makeup situation, would you want it to go further? Mm -hmm. There were three sections. None of them were over 50%. Mm -hmm. But 46% was the largest one and they were saying yes. Yeah. So not only did she not ask this question of girls, the one question that's kind of similar that she did ask of girls, the biggest group was the one who said, yes, I want some sex. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so we have no evidence that this is harder for guys than it is for girls. Now, I think, it, I think we know that guys do have... But not only that, not only that, like she, we found that 46% of girls would want it to go further. Mm -hmm. You know what number she found of boys? 48%. Yeah. She found 48% for boys and 46% for girls. Yeah. But she's emphasizing that this is much harder for this guys. Is just, this is just, once again, just ask everyone the same questions and you yeah. don't have this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the real issue here, again, is what she chose to emphasize gave a very distinct message to girls, which is this gatekeeping message that we're talking about, which is boys are going to want to push your sexual boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so you are going to have to be the one to halt it. They're the gas, you're the brakes. Yeah. And I love this quote, which kind of summarizes the whole thing. She highlighted this above everything else. Yeah. So she, she not only includes this in the text, but then she also takes it out and puts it in a little like thought bubble, thought bubble little thing at the top of the page. And it says... A guy from her interview said, with a guy, if you want to be able to stop it, it being sex, it's safest to not even start. Mm -hmm. Which is, if you want to be able to stop it, it's safest to not even start. Do you see what this is insinuating here? What, what this means 
Let's just actually get into this. Yeah. What this means is if you are a 16-year-old on a date with a boy who you've been crushing on for forever and you wear your prettiest dress and you show up and you're making out and you're like, this is awesome. And he starts going further and you start pushing his hands away and you start saying no and he keeps going and then you read Shanti's book and you feel so gross about what happened last Thursday. You know, and you read Shanti's book and you hear Shanti, a Christian teacher, emphasizing with a guy, if you want to be able to stop it, it's safest to not even start. And what does that tell that girl? Mm-hmm. What does that tell that girl with where the responsibility lies for her assault? Yeah. You know, because she should have known better yeah. than to even start. Yeah. Doesn't she know how guys think? That is what Shanti is saying in this book. Yeah. And again, that is not what, what she, she measured. No, that's not what she found at all. She found that guys really like consensual sex. Yeah, because let's let's take her question, and if we were to reword yeah. it, if we were to say, if you were to be in a makeout situation with a girl who said, I would like to stop, how do you feel about your ability to stop the sexual progression? We mm-hmm. would have seen very different numbers. Yeah. And that would have been valid to talk about totally. in this context. Totally. But you cannot talk about guys not being able to stop when you told the guys that the girl doesn't want to it stop. Would, it would be like if we asked this question of husbands. You know, picture your wife. If you were to be in a makeup situation with your wife and your wife seems really into it, how do you feel about your ability to stop the sexual progression? Most guys would say, what are you talking about? Of course not. I don't think we'd find only 82% of Christian married men would Mm -hmm. say I would. I think that 30% say, why would I want to stop? I think that would go up to Mm 99.7%. Right? Because you're in an an expected consensual area. Yeah. Right? We would not then say, you have to be careful not to be raped. Because all Christian married men will not stop. Once right. it starts. Well, right. of course you don't say that because we understand there's consent. Mm-hmm. You know, there was consent. And so then we need to be careful when we're talking about this to emphasize that all this conversation that happens about how, hey, boys want to just go, you know, teenagers are horny. That's mm-hmm. just, that's just how teenagers are. Mm-hmm. All of that needs to be completely cloaked in conversation about how, remember, these boys imp- thought they were in a consensual relationship. So if you were ever in a non-consensual situation, this does not apply to you. She yeah. doesn't say that once. No. And the big thing is that she doesn't say that a good relationship is two people working together towards a healthy sexual ethic. Instead, what she says is that boys need girls to be cautious and strong because without it, boys are just going to do what they're going to do and they're going to go all the way. Here's what she said. A lot of the, because this is where she, she does a lot of these things where she contradicts herself where she has good advice and then the very next sentence is absolute poison. Okay, Mm -hmm. ready? A lot of the responsible guys we talked to didn't want to have to be the only one trying to stop. Fine. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you were equally yoked, two oxen, loaded lighter, right? Great. Wonderful. But then she says this, they wanted and even needed the girls help so they didn't have to be the only strong one to say that a guy needs, needs the girls help implies, that immediately puts rape culture back yeah, in yeah it puts rape culture back yes. in it and implies that he is not going to be able to stop and yep. so this normalizes rape culture and if she had said they wanted and even needed the girls help in consensual sexual experiences like if she even said and listen this is only about if you guys are both going hot and heavy you both need to help each other. If she had said that, that mm-hmm. would have been different. But instead, again, think back to the 16-year-old who's just been assaulted. She's going to read that and think, I didn't do my part. He yeah. is a good guy. This guy I've been crushing on for two years who finally noticed me. Maybe he is a good guy. Maybe I just mm-hmm. need to be stronger. 
mm-hmm. you know? This book does nothing to tell assault victims it was not because you did anything wrong. There's one throwaway sentence later that says yeah. rape is wrong, yeah. but this whole thing is grooming girls to excuse predatory behavior in boyfriends by putting the blame on themselves because for a lot of girls, a lot of people will do will bend themselves backwards trying to figure out how they're the problem because if they're the problem, they can fix it. If they're mm-hmm. the problem, they don't have to give up on this relationship. If they're the problem, they don't need to get their heart broken and they can just accept that someone finally loves them. What Shanti has done by taking this question where she found that, surprise, boys like consensual sex mm-hmm. and turning it into if you go too far, it's probably because you didn't put on the brakes. Mm-hmm. She takes well-intentioned guys and turns them all into potential rapists in girls' heads, which means that they don't have the ability to see the red flags, but when a guy is actually predatory versus when he's just a normal guy. Mm-hmm. And that is so concerning. Yeah. And this is how the gatekeeping message got big. Yeah. In this Christian is how. Circles. Shanti's research It's is not big. only Shanti, no. not by any stretch of the imagination. There were many other books that were doing the same thing. We just wanted to use it because it was so stark with that research to show how things can get twisted so easily yeah. and how boys can be misrepresented mm-hmm. and then girls can just get this idea that if date rape happens, it's my fault. And then no wonder we see this gatekeeping message having such negative repercussions in later marriage and sex lives. And so we just simply need to change the conversation. Mm -hmm. We need to get back to what is a healthy sexual ethic, how we should be able to expect whoever we're with to be healthy and to respect us, and how we are not responsible to keep them from sin. And if we understand that, we do a lot better. So join us next week on the Bear Marriage Podcast. It's going to be less harsh than yes. this one, but really, really super interesting because we're going to be demolishing the every man's battle message because we've got some such cool findings oh, from that a men's study research. that yeah. we just did. And we want to share that with you to show how the lust message has gone totally bizarre and totally berserk and is, is hurting everybody. And we need to stop, stop talking about it like that. And then join us on the blog at tolovehonoredvacuum.com. We've got some amazing freebies for people who pre-ordered our book. We're going to be telling you about tomorrow. Um, we've got a lot more going on about how churches can help with date rape and talk about date rape in a healthy way. And then next week, it's all about lust. So there's a lot going on. We would love for you to tune in and thank you for joining us this week too.